everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee, talking about writing, publishing, the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your host today is me, all by myself, Jeannie Warner, and an occasionally very loudmouthed cat named Calvin. I'm not sure if it's about Calvin of Hobbes, Calvin the philosopher, but we're not sure. Or maybe Calvin because he's like semi-bald? Could be. He is fairly bald. This is episode 28, an interview with Heather Rose Jones. Welcome to the coffee shop. Thank you for having me. Oh, and thank a, you for the, the lovely latte that you provided. It is a delight. We are too early in the morning to get our boys, who I think are recovering from a rough night out. But we wanted to get together and dive right in because Heather's written a whole bunch of books that are a delightful read. Many short stories. How, how long have you been at this? So I... My first short story was published in the mid-90s, just when I was starting grad school, um, although I, I traced my writing career back to, I think it was third grade, when I plagiarized my first poem. Oh, beautiful. They, they, they said, write a poem. They did not distinguish between compose and transcribe. So it got published in the school, you know, creative writing booklet and... I did not realize until later that I should have told them. You know, there's a lot of things that they're not very clear with on childhood. So we'll just, we'll just go. When, but, did, when did you get into it for realsies? When did you decide this is what I want to do? Well, I started, so I, I started writing in quantity in the, my gap year between high school and college because I had the year off and we were, my family was living in Germany that year and I didn't have a, a, I did not have a structured life to live, and I had all these stories in my head that were getting really, really crowded. And for the sake of my um, it, it, my psychological health, I needed to get them out. So I started writing these fantasy stories, and um, I would not have let any of them see the light of day except that my youngest brother, who was also there, uh, was very short on. English language reading materials. This was way before the internet, so you had to have actual books. And he bargained with me that as long as he never, ever, ever said anything, either critical or praiseworthy, about my writing, he was allowed to read everything I wrote that year. Okay. Um, so uh, that was when I started getting a sense of, you know, what it is, what is it to write a story? But I would say that in terms of writing things intended for publication, it wasn't until around the 90s, so like, what, 30 years ago. That uh, makes sense. So so you kind of, in a weird sort of way, you went that, we, we talked about in another episode, everybody kind of starts with poetry works to short stories up to novels. Was that your path <laughs> too? Or? Um, yeah, I think so. It's, I, I wrote very uh, emo poetry when I was in high school oh, and junior high. God, we all do. Yeah, only I, I wrote it in languages that I had invented so that nobody could ever possibly <gasps> actually read them. Nice. Yes. We learned Sindarin so yeah. we could write it in Elvish script and pass notes in class. So. And, and then I moved on to things that, that were fairly short. They were intended to be novels, but, right. but they were fairly short. And then I moved on to basically sketching out world building by means of uh, conlanging and um, coming up with stories for the people who talk those languages. And all of that is, is very much by the wayside. Um, but 
I started writing in earnest when I had a halftime job in grad school working for a small uh, fantasy magazine. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're working in the industry, then you get contacts and then there's like a call for short story submissions yeah. and you put something out there and you always doubt for the rest of your life whether you got into the anthology because you knew people or not. And but it, oh, see, it, I just I'll take anything, you know. Oh, look, there's my name against somebody I admire. Well, well, the the further I have gotten into the SFF, you know, community and industry, the more I realize, of course, it's all about connections and what you yeah. hear about and who you know, and the fact that they see you as a person, and therefore they pay more attention to what you're doing. Yeah. And it doesn't bother me anymore. But there was a certain amount of it's like, okay, I got my my first steps in because I knew people personally. And, and I did not at that time realize that that was just how things are. Yeah. But so I, I sold some short stories. I sold enough stories to uh, get my SIFO membership. And I started writing novels. And my novels were lesbian historical fiction. So mm-hmm. they were not aimed at the SFF market that I then had my foothold in. Well, the traditional, as it were. Yes. You know. And none of those were... I, I had one that I got to the point of, you know, sending out to all sorts of publishers and, and receiving all sorts of uh, rejection notices if I heard back at all. And and that, of course, was before the days of ebooks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was asking somebody to, you know, put, invest their, their hard-won pages into my book. And it was probably the right thing to do, not to accept my novel at that point. I, I found the publishing industry is very conservative in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, is that an understatement of the... They're not sure about new. They want somebody. They want it to be an established path, and then they'll go down it. And then, well, and I, I think part of it was that I was doing something very different from even what the sort of mainstream of lesbian fiction publishing was then. In what writing. was it then, really? Well, it, it it was and still is very heavily contemporary romance, okay. um, and with a little okay. bit of mystery and thriller thrown in sometimes. Okay, and I. You know, I, I just got to a point where it's like, okay, so that wasn't working. And at that point, I was very deeply in my midlife career as a graduate student in linguistics. And I stopped writing fiction because I was writing a dissertation. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And when I came out of grad school, I decided I needed a completely new relationship to fiction writing because I had this tendency to like write all the juicy parts and then kind of get bogged down trying to connect them together. And so when I wrote my first novel, they got published, Daughter of Mystery, I said, I'm going to write start to finish. I am not only not going to write ahead, but I am not going to compose ahead. I am going to write this as it comes to me and just plunge on through to the end and see if that produces something that works better as a story. Oh, I want to unpack that one a little bit because we have in other times been talking about there is no one true way to write a novel. There are people that... There's, you know, plotters and pantsers, I think, are yeah. two of the words. But there's, you know, sometimes it's the I have the scene in my head and I've got to write it. And mm-hmm. then I know how it's going to end because here's my denouement. <laughs> and, here's my, and I have all these you know. wonderful metaphors for my writing process. So one of them is about surfing the wave. So, okay. so that there's this wave of creative energy and you have to find the sweet spot with your, your writing surfboard where you've got the story built up behind you and, and the, the movement down the face of the wave is your actual getting words on paper. And if, 
if you don't have enough story built up behind you, then you know you lose the wave. But but if you have too much imagined in your head and you can't get it down on paper fast enough, then you're wiping out. Oh. Um, and so I had this this very clear vision of what I was trying to do with this this new approach to writing was to 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 create the right amount of wave behind me so that the writing would flow naturally and quickly and it wouldn't like but, tumble me under. But do you have to hold that in your head? I mean, are you sitting in a metaphorical hammock staring at the sky, kind of getting the story straight in your head then? Or are you, do you take notes? No, mostly you- what happened would be that I would be scribbling down story in odd moments around other activities because you know, life is busy. It is. And, and that was what worked for me would be I would get like a scene in my head and, and, okay, my employer do not listen to this podcast. Um, And and during a very boring, during a very boring meeting at work, I would be scribbling down paragraphs. Oh, none of us have ever been in really boring meetings ever. Not in any of my all the companies, you can find me on LinkedIn to know which they are. And And at that time, also, I was very hooked into writing longhand, because that writing longhand for me at that point, kept my composition to exactly the right rate to go with my flow. Interesting. If I if I at that time, and and it's all different now at that time, if I tried composing while typing, I could type faster than I could put the words together. And it would it would be sort of like, you know the bad old days when you would be, you know, playing music and it would have buffering problems and it would stop oh, and yes, start. Yeah. Yes. So my writing would be like that. Whereas writing longhand slowed the writing down enough that my buffer was always full. Okay. Uh, so as I say, I've got lots of metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> but when people ask me, you know, what's my process for writing books, I have to tell them, well, which book? Because I have never used the same process twice at this point. Yeah, that's that's the wisdom that seems to come out from everybody. It's like, okay, I wrote it this way. You know, there's a few people who said, I wrote a short story, and then I discovered it wasn't a short story. There was just too much, and so it had to keep expanding. Was- yeah, so for the for the second novel, for, for Mystic Marriage, it was a bit more outlined and there wasn't that I I knew what it was going to happen in it whereas with Daughter of Mystery I I honestly had no idea what was going to happen later in the book when I started writing and then when I got to the third book Mother of Souls I already knew that book three and book four were going to overlap in plot significantly so I had to completely outline everything down to the slightest detail so that I knew how the two stories interwove with each other it saves pitching cleanup later yeah so I so I had this entire wall of color-coded post-it notes for the different points of view and a timeline and everything was there red string no, there was no red string. It was I don't just, know. I always imagine somebody doing it the way that they, you know, you see it on the wall in the mystery oh, for TV. Yeah. Like, ah, I'm trying to see all the connections and the red string goes here to here. And Yeah, it wasn't so much connections. It was what happens in what order and whose point of view does it have to be from. And, and I, I like alternating points of view in a fairly, fairly rigid way. And, and Rigid is good. I mean, I, I was reading a couple of stories once that middle of a chapter, it kept switching points of view and finally I had to put it down. I'm like, I can't follow this. I'm, I'm you yeah, know, it's like, me. I have no idea who is thinking this. <laughs> so, so then when I got to write writing book four, of course, I already had the detailed outline right. set out. And did that make it harder or easier? For it your, made it easier a lot because, okay. because by then I had a slightly different writing process which involved dictating to myself while I was driving on my commute, uh, hands-free, hands-free, <laughs> and, 
so I would the, the the evening before I would look at the outline for the next scene. I would get it in my head. I would run through it a little bit, you know, in my head as I was going to sleep. Um, I would get in the car the next morning, uh, put the dictaphone in my pocket and clip the microphone to my collar. And after I'd picked up my coffee at Starbucks, I'd turn the, the little recorder on and I would dictate to myself for the next 30, 40 minutes as I drove into work. And well, as I drove into the coffee shop and then in the yeah. coffee shop, I would transcribe it um, and then lather, rinse and repeat. And it was very hard getting used to dictating. I was going to say, but did it go faster? Because there's... um. I, there was a book that I've read that helped me a lot of the, if you know what's going to happen in a scene, what new information is going to advance the plot, who we're going to see, how we're, you know, that once you have an idea of what's going to be in there, writing is faster. So. I don't know that it's faster because each, each method has its own ups and downs. When I did dictation, there would be a lot of repetition, you know, that I would, I would lose track of what I'd already said. Right. So it was, it, uh, one of my other metaphors is the first draft is making the clay. The second draft is throwing the pot. And so it was a lot of clay making. Yeah. And the point was, was that it worked for me. It got words on the page. And for me, that's always the essential part of a writing process is what do you have to do to get words on the page? And once the words are on the page, then you can arrange them. Yeah. Well, Terry Pratchett said your first draft is you telling the story to yourself, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then it's, I think somewhere in there, it's, then it's you telling it to your, your test readers, your people they are like, you know, does mm -hmm. this make sense? And then telling it to your agent. I don't know. Do you, do you have an agent currently? Or are you no, a self-published person? Uh, I, I am published by a very small press and do not make enough money that any agent would bother to touch me. Right. Um, and I've done. What's, some, the, what's the press? Uh, Bella Books. Bella Books. And we will, we'll link them into the uh, liner notes yes. for those looking for other. Uh, do they do they cover other queer authors? Uh, they are specifically, specifically a lesbian press, nice. and that isn't to say the authors don't have to be lesbian, but the stories do. Right, um, and they have dozens of authors. They uh, they are sort of the spiritual inheritors of Nyad Press, which was the one of the big, uh, you know, first generation lesbian presses. This is, and and I think that's important as we. As it comes off so often recently, representation, representation mm -hmm. matters. So you, you said something when we were first talking about doing this podcast about, you know, claiming a place in history. Let's, let's talk about that because so I, I write huge. historical fantasy yeah. and I, I also write historical fiction. Um, and as I say, my, my first actual completed novel was a, a solidly, you know, historical, lesbian historical romance set in first century Britain during the Boudican Rebellion. And someday I will go back and completely rewrite it because I love that <laughs> setting. But I have this, this very strong feeling because I'm an amateur historian. So I fell in love with history when I was a kid and I've done historic reenactment. And I love doing everyday concrete material culture type things like, you know, cooking with historic cook pots and, and whatnot. Yeah. And as part of that, I kept trying to get a sense of, as a queer woman, as a lesbian, what would my place in history have been? And I realized I honestly had no idea. And of course, this was back in like the 80s and 90s when a lot of the currently available research had not yet been done. It is true. And so to some extent, my, my writing lesbian historical fiction was a way of saying, who would I have been in previous ages? What place would I have had? Would there be a place for me? Well, there, history is a lot about men in history. And I'm so delighted that they're starting to talk more about women in history. I was, 
uh, entirely too young to be reading I, Cleopatra when I did, I think, in third grade. But she had her first affair was with her maid, Charmian. <laughs> and that was delightful. That was my first introduction to lesbian <laughs> sex. I didn't, I didn't even think of it. It was just simply sex with girls. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was a horrible inter thing where she had to marry her brother, and that was icky. And then, well, looking Well, at except me, they didn't think it was. It was just what uh, they did, he was. Know? He had issues. He was well, a little retarded. Yeah, but. <laughs> so, but then, you know, she wanted to seduce a conqueror, so she seduced Caesar, and then mm-hmm. she seduced Mark Anthony. And it was like, for her, it was just the way they wrote it was neat for me because I don't know if it was that early that's like, you want who you want. Sex is sex. It's just mm-hmm. sometimes it involves different ways and means. So I guess I understood being bisexual more quickly early that way. But when I think about it, there was not a lot that was anything that was bisexual or lesbian beyond that. And I had read nothing from men's points of view mm-hmm. either. So I, I think it's neat that there's a whole press that anybody can go out and say, I want more lesbian stories because <laughs> if it's going to be 10% of society is their estimate, that 10% of the people are bi or gay, then that's the way it's been throughout history, right? Well, now we get into the whole question of what is sexuality in history. Well, that is true. And that ties into my blog. So I I have been collecting books on the history of sexuality and gender since that point in the 80s when I started saying, you know, if I had existed in previous centuries, who would I have been? How would, What experiences would I have had? Right. And, and then that morphed into I want to write lesbian historical novels and I need, I need research because I don't want to just make it up off the top of my head. Right. Um, and that's something that in my – so, so I'll, we, we will get to the point that I have a podcast too and I interview other authors of uh, you know, queer women in historical fiction – and so often what I hear is, oh, I didn't do any research. People are people. I just like, you know, wrote people like, like my experience. And the thing is, the more you look at the history of understanding sexuality, the more you realize that's not true, that how you experience your sexuality is very shaped by the society's images. What models do you have? What, what expectations do you have? Not just in terms of the possible life paths you have, but what does society tell you about what you're feeling and, and what the options are for doing something about that. And people, people today have a tendency to look at the 20th century, which is the best documented century for queer history, and say, it has always been like this. Or even more so, they say, well, we know that we have been becoming more open-minded and more tolerant, and therefore everything before the 20th century must have been really, really awful and repressed. And that is just so not true. I'm not saying that there was ever a queer paradise in history, but it was different. No, there there was differences. And there's, sto- there's individual stories that you get. For instance, it was... I remember it was during Elizabeth's time was the first time that a sailor in the English Navy actually was punished for being gay. And that was the first record anywhere in it. So clearly it had happened before then, (laughs) but it wasn't a big deal until some new administration came around and made changes. And And, and the ways that people put the pieces together of sexuality were different. You know, one of the things you encounter in... People, and I have to say, mostly I'm talking about European history because that's my specialty. That's what I'm familiar with. 
where people thought that your gender identity was a result of desire rather than well now 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 we have the attitude that gender identity and and you know orientation in terms of sexual desire are entirely separate axes and you can have all the combinations yeah but you encounter in history people saying oh you are a you know a female bodied person somebody who has been assigned as female at birth but you sexually desire a woman this is proof that you are actually in fact a trans man i see uh, they wouldn't have used that terminology, but that was the essence of the argument. And then you also have other circumstances where it's like you are a female body person who, who sexually desires women. Well, doesn't everybody? <laughs> yes. And as, as near as I can tell, lesbianism through history has been slightly more acceptable than being gay in many cases because. Well, so sex between <laughs> women has been more acceptable because yeah. the powers that be, you know, the pat- patriarchal misogynistic powers that be didn't care. It yeah. didn't. The, the act of sex between women in general was not considered to be of importance. Yeah. Now, what was of importance was a woman claiming a male place and male privileges in, in the world. So if you were a cross-dressing woman, if you were a woman trying to pass as a man, or alternately, if you were a trans man and, and yeah, trousers. going through the world. One that, reads about women yes. getting in trouble for trousers. Yes. Now, that was a problem, not because of any assumptions about your sexuality necessarily, but because you were claiming privileges that you did not have a right to. Mm. And and that gets all tangled together when you're trying to research history for the purpose of writing, you know, writing historical fiction for a modern audience, because we we put those pieces together in different ways today. And if you put them together in the ways that historic people did, it doesn't always make sense to a modern audience or they think that it's wrong or they, they misinterpret what you're saying. And one of the, the, the continuing themes in, um, you know, in queer studies, in, in the study of, of, of history from a queer perspective is getting to the point of saying there really are not absolutes here. Now, now I don't go the full postmodernism. Okay. You know, I, I do believe that there are objective facts in history, but but the the idea that gender identity, sexuality, these are not immutable facts like, you know, eye color. These are things that emerge and are experienced and are interpreted in particular historic contexts. And so when you're writing a character in history who is, say, a female-bodied person in love with a female-bodied person, how that story develops, how those characters understand their lives, how they interact with the people around them is immensely varied and richly varied. And it's, it's, it's wonderfully, uh, you know, many different possibilities for writing stories. Yeah. But you can write a story in certain times and places in history where two women are in love with each other romantically. They are involved with each other sexually. Their friends and families know about this and they can live openly more or less, you know, with, with this life. And you tell that to somebody, you know, a 21st century person that, you know, this was going on in say the um, 17th century. It's like, nah, that's not possible. You know? So, 
So getting back to how this relates to my writing, one of the things I want to do in writing lesbian historical fiction is to bring out some of those stories, to show different ways of being a lesbian in history than people think are possible. And you have, um, you were telling me that all of your books really, you know, looking up your series, and you've written quite a few of them there, are all in the same series. They're mm-hmm. all in the same, are they, but they're not the same characters? Or how do you, so, you're so, saying they're different books, same book versus different books, different angles. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. So the Alpenia series, uh, I describe it as a uh, Regency era Ruritanian romantic adventure fantasy. Ruritanian. Ruritanian in that I have invented the country of Alpenia. Fantastic. Um, to set them in, largely because I needed to do things with the social system and the legal system that didn't match any existing country. So I, I wanted a sandbox to play in where I didn't have to worry about being precisely correct about the way the society works. World building is beautiful. Now, it's it's not a completely alternate history. And it the idea is that Alpenian society is roughly parallel to its neighbors of, you know, France, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, so forth, in, in essential ways. But I I could make things up and not worry about getting that aspect of it wrong. Right. And Re- Regency era, because it is set in the, the early 19th century, the just, just barely post-Napoleonic era, um, it's not truly Regency because it's not set in England. Right. But... I wanted that look and feel. I mean, one of the one of the godmothers of my series uh, is Georgette Heyer. <laughs> there are many folks that have enjoyed our Georgette Heyer and making love in the moonlight. <laughs> and I wanted to write something that had that look and feel, that had yeah. the look and feel of a Georgette Heyer uh, Regency romance with the girls falling in love with each other. And I threw in magic and fantasy because that's my native tongue. Are there pirates? Tell me there's pirates. Oh, it's a landlocked country. There are no pirates. I'm sorry. Pirates. Pirates get around. (sighs) Yes, well, there are evil sorcerers. I'll take it. Okay. Okay. So so the series is essentially a a, a gradual accumulation of a a found family type group of, of women that it, some of them are related to each other, some of them are lovers, some of them are friends, some of them are ex-lovers, some of them are, you know, professional colleagues. But I started out with a fairly traditional, you know, young love um, coming-of-age story with two central characters. And then the next story took two of the side characters from that and added in a romance for them, but kept all four characters as viewpoint characters because it's not a romance series. It is a romantic adventure series. And so everything that the original pair was doing is still vitally important to the plot. They're still driving the actions. They're still essential parts of what's going on. This has confused some of my readers who said, it's like, no, no, your first pair should like step back and out of the picture. It's like, it's not their story anymore. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand what I'm doing. It is their story still. It will be their story all the way through the end. It's kind of a kaleidoscope of many different stories collapsing all around an image. Yeah. So in, in each story, there are new viewpoint characters and a shift in focus and a shift in tone and flavor. And you said a shift in theme, too. And a shift, well, more a shift in subgenre. Okay. So the, the first one was fairly solidly just romantic adventure. 
you know, there was a little bit of swashbuckling. There was a, you know, very slow burn romance developing. There was peril. There was resolution. There was, you know, lost heiresses and, and all the wonderful things. And then the second story was a much more psychological story in the the the, the new pair of viewpoint characters where it was very much about, you know, overcoming adversity and sorting out all of your um all of your your issues and having two extremely different people figure out not only that they were in love with each other, but that they wanted to make it work long term. Plus a secret plot to potentially assassinate one of the possible heirs to the throne and um, a scientific mystery of how to create magical alchemical gems and, and all of that braiding together. And then the third book is much more a study of um, sexism and misogyny in the 19th century world and the ways that women have to find their way around patriarchal structures to build the things they want to do. It's about a woman aspiring to write an opera and then finding out her music is being stolen by another composer. It's about a woman deciding that if the university won't let women be students, she will found her own university. I was going to say, even even in the 60s, I know a woman named Delana Rubenfeld, who was a conducting major, and she was top of her class, I believe she went to Juilliard, could not get a gig. I mean, there was nobody that would take her, even though she graduated top of her class, graded everything because she was a woman. Mm -hmm. And women are not conductors in the 1960s (laughs) in America. So I could see that all through time, there's been that just because you're the most capable in most everything, that doesn't mean that people are going to just see the worth right there. And the, the other side of that in the story is that they're building these structures, these woman-centered structures that women are supporting and women are participating in that can so easily be erased by from history by people simply ignoring them and not talking about them. And that, of course, is something we even see in Every science day. fiction where, where people are constantly rediscovering the fact that women were writing science fiction all along. <laughs> Now, now you've also branched into storytelling via new mediums. I, you were going to talk to me a little bit about uh, different pictures, and you've moved into podcast. And tell me about your uh, your new mediums rather than just words on paper. <laughs> so I mentioned briefly my blog, uh, my my history research blog, which to some extent it's it's the equivalent of doing a second PhD in history of sexuality. I'm doing an annotated bibliography of research materials that are useful to me and hopefully to other people in writing uh, alternate sexualities in history. And don't worry, we are definitely linking all of this on the page. (laughs) So as I say, it's, it's an annotated bibliography. Each blog post is a summary and analysis of a different publication. And I've gotten... I'm coming up on 300 publications at this point, nice. and I've got, and I and I add new ones to my to-do list faster than I can do them. But out of that came a podcast, so I'm looking around for other ways to present this material because not everybody wants to read an academic annotated, annotated bibliography. And at that time, um, Sheena, who runs the the Lesbian Review website, which is a review site, was starting up a podcast for various. Uh, various shows centered around lesbian fiction. Um, and and so she she asked me just about the same time that I asked her if uh, I could do a, a show on this network. And it it's called the the Lesbian Talk Show. We've now rebranded it as Tilt TLT. 
and and there will be links to that, of course. Yeah. And so I was doing essays on topics, so like biographical essays or essays on particular themes. And when I wanted to expand to a weekly show rather than a monthly show, then I added in author interviews. I added in um, a sort of a roundup of publishing news. And eventually I added in fiction. So I've always thought that the best way to encourage the sort of fiction you want to read is to be a publisher. Yeah. I cannot be a publisher of physical books because I simply do not have the skills or the dedication or the time. I have a lot of project management. We've interviewed a publisher. (laughs) I have watched how Catherine Lundoff has set up Queen of Swords Press. Uh, I mean, and, and years, watched her over the years do that. And I am so impressed by everything she's put into it to make it a professional going concern, to build it up in a sustainable manner. And I can't do that. Yeah. But when I was thinking about things to do with my podcast, it occurred to me I could do audio fiction. It doesn't require having a physical presence. It doesn't require having distribution. All it requires is... It's also accessibility. Yes. How do you make yourself accessible to somebody that doesn't have, you know, great vision or time to read? Or I, for instance, hate printed books anymore because my vision is crap. So, (laughs) all right. And I had the I had the example of some of my favorite fiction podcasts, uh, like the Podcastle and the whole um, that that whole podcast group. And and I, I sort of took them as my model for how I wanted to approach it. Well, we're going to put links to the stories and the interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us, as well as Heather Rose Jones, on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, We answer email. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the host. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow. And our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to go out and buy cool WDC swag, including the new Live at Mally's t-shirt.